Hello, everybody. Welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at Stay Day NFL on Twitter, and of course, follow the group at UK Packers. And uh, we're day late, day late with the podcast. But the news broke that Leroy Butler just got into the Hall of Fame, which is brilliant. The, the Hall of Fame. It's one of those things where people are like, "Oh, if Jerry Kramer's not in, it's an absolute joke." Everyone in there is a gangster, and no, not Jerry Kramer gets in, and they're like, "Oh." Yeah, that's fine. All right. But Leroy Butler not being in there to place an absolute joke full of clowns. And then he, now he's got in. So I wonder what the next guy is that um, has been smited with by the mighty smiter. Um, but look, uh, we're a day late and um, I'm going to put in the Leroy Butler episode. Not out of laziness, I think. It was always one of those things that I had planned to do when he got in to let people know exactly who he is. Also, and I'm not I'm going to say this and then I'm going to move straight on because I'm not one to kind of you know, hurry out personal reasons to for people to give me sympathy, but my son had surgery yesterday. So I'm going to get on real quick, give a new bit of content, real cool new bit content, and, and then I'm going to uh, do the Leroy Butler sort of tacked it on the end so you can hear him talking to me. Um, and then I'm going to get out of Dodge and then we'll be back next week. So the news is also broke that Aaron Rodgers is MVP. Comments underneath that one are interesting. Um, and I also have some notes done. So I was literally sitting in the hospital. Um, again, not doing this for sympathy. Um, and I was just taking some notes on like salary cap and all this type of stuff. But I want to talk about Rich Bisacci. Uh, because it's kind of a guy you look at. He was up there for, um, you know, coach of the year, which Matt LaFleur didn't get. Apparently he only got eight votes. But let's hold on to hold on to your togs, lads. Um, so I wanted to talk about Rich Bisacci because... Because what it was is it was A, nervous boredom, um, and also B, it was kind of just thinking, what, what's the deal with this guy? I mean, he's, you know, he's going from the interim head coach of the Raiders because John Gruden got turfed out on his ear. Um, and he steps in and, you know, does a great job, brings them to the playoffs or whatever. And then, uh, you know, seven and five to get there. Who's the first interim head coach to do that with a team? and lead him to the playoffs since Bruce Arians did it with the Colts in 2012. So that'll kind of show you what kind of company he is. So I was looking at that and I was thinking, oh, well, maybe he's a candidate then to be head coach somewhere. Um, and why the hell is he becoming special teams coach? And that's what I wanted to know. So I sat down and I thought there would be a lot of perusing to do because he was a special teams coach. But courtesy of Matt Sniper in The Athletic and also Packers.com, great resource. Uh, you can't knock it. Some people don't like the uh, the team based stuff because they think it's all biased. But if you want some good info, it's all there. All right. If you want some, if you want some hot takes. Twitter is the bumhole that you need to go to. But look, Rich Basaccia, thirty eight years experience, twenty years as a special teams coordinator. So he was with Oakland and Vegas for four years, uh, the Cowboys for five years, the Chargers for two years, and the Bucks for nine years. So a lot of time, a lot of time being special teams coordinator. And the most look. We, I'm going to go on and say some stats here. And again, before any smart errors come, oh, you already lifted that from... Yes, I got my uh, information from the aforementioned sources. Um, but again, some people don't have time to, to look at it. But when you look at that sort of um, experience, that's great. But I saw a picture of him counting his special team players on the field, which is already better than what we had last year. No offence to, to Mo. Um, so yeah, look, he was an interim head coach at the Raiders, but he's been an assistant head coach for 11 years. So the last couple of places that he's been with his experience of 38 years, they asked him to come in and be assistant head coach as well, which is why it made sense that he became the interim head coach uh, for the Las Vegas Raiders. 
when John Gruden got turfed out. So with Dallas, then I was thinking, right, okay. So he's been in the league for forever and he's been a special teams coach for forever. Um, who, what's that mean? Who cares? Like, you know, if is he a good one? Are his stats good? Or does he just have loads of experience? Does that mean anything? You know, because Menenga came in and people are like, oh, great. Mo Drayton came in. They're like, oh, you know, he's going to jazz up the place and it's going to be great. Um, so now we've reached uh, Basach. Yeah. And um, according, you know, as long as we don't lose Aaron Rodgers, but people are saying we've won, we've won the offseason, guys. We've won the offseason. Well done. That's it. We've done it. We've done it. We've completed it, lads. We've completed it, mate. Uh, so he went to Dallas when there were 29th in special teams in 2012 and then he got them to number 5 uh, he came in with the Chargers and they were number 13 after being last a year before which was you know that's kind of where we're at uh, the Bucks, they went on to win a Super Bowl in his first season he had 3 Pro Bowler special teamers and he's had 13 NFC Player of the Weeks which is really good so before the NFL he did 19 seasons in college coaching so he's been coaching since 1983 so 83 to 2001 and he also played DB in college he was a four year starter in Yankton College uh, which is fun to say in South Dakota who doesn't know players from Yankton um, College I'm sure you you know you've you've met someone from Yankton this week Um, so 1983 to 2001 that's 19 seasons in college coaching as well so he gets the young lads uh, and he gets the he gets the professionals because he's been doing it now for since Jesus was a baby so his track record they say his best unit this is according to Packers.com um, is, is his past season where he came in with the Raiders and they had an 11th unit so it's 16 seasons he's had 8 top 10 units so basically half his time have been in the top 10 which is fairly sexy because if you look at it Dallas number 29 they're crap Chargers were last and he got them to 13 brilliant so even though they didn't break the top 10 saying that year from last to 13th you know, they're in the top one third ish of the league, uh, which is fun. Fantastico. Um, so he's worked with Joe Barry before. That's where kind of the connection comes in. Six seasons with him with the Bucks and then another one with the Chargers. Um, but look, since 1983, basically, as I was saying, I mean, 1983-2001 in college, that's where he's kind of been dabbling with special teams, which is great. So it's not promising for the Packers that they had Sean Menenga and there was big fanfare there. And then he got turfed out and then Mo Drayton came in. And it felt kind of bad for him because he seemed like he had a great attitude and that, like, it should have worked. Um, and he got his players in the position to work and then it just didn't work. So, what else? But look, you know, Packers special teams and problems with special teams have always been around, in fairness. So, you can point at LaFleur and say, oh, this is his third special teams coach, you know, in as many years, yada, yada, yada. But... But look at Ron Zuck. Uh, there, I know it's given people shivers down the spine. There was a, a time where McCarthy actually relinquished play calling because the special teams were so bad. Um, so it looks like, and as I said, well done. We've won, lads. Lads, we've won the off-season. Hello. Yep, that's it. Completed, mate. Uh, we've won the off-season because we've got the best and most experienced coach available. Certainly for special teams because he's been doing it since 1983. And there's people listening to this podcast that weren't even born. All right, and he was teaching special teams. So, I mean, chalk that one up to the W column. We don't even need to see the special team results. We've got this in the back. But he's going to have a, a really interesting, I don't know, baptism of fire, I guess, because you look at Mason Crosby, and uh, that's in my cap notes. I'm not going to go there this week. Um, I think I'll just uh, move swiftly on to now to the Leroy Butler interview and then try pick stuff back up again after the family life camps down a little bit. But... You know, Mason Crosby could not be there. And this is a guy who... Here's a guy who was consistent. He's been around. He's the top uh, point scorer. You know, he had the, his yips year back in whatever year that was, 2012, 13. Uh, was it later? 15? No, it wasn't 15. We kicked ass then. Um, so, 
you know, he had his yips, they stuck with him, uh, cut his contract, and then he ended up getting a bigger one. But it came back to kind of bite him in the booty. And the fact that the unit wasn't great, you'd wonder, was that the long snapper? Was it the holder? I mean, what's happened? There was a lot of change there. Um, apparently, it was the long snapper, but they uh, did away with him, and it didn't get much better. So, there it is. Anyway, um, Leroy Butler, uh, congratulations to you, sir. You're in the Hall of Fame, uh, which is much deserved because his stats were out of this world, and he invented the Lambo Leap. Um, trademark. Leroy Butler. So uh, I'm going to get on to that interview now where he talks to me, uh, flatters me with the whole Irish accent thing. I think at the end we talk about coming over to Green Bay, which obviously is, you know, this interview isn't uh, young. So um, yeah, but look, we'll try and meet him when we do go over. But anyway, without further ado, congratulations, Mr. Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Lambo Leap. The man who has his own vodka but doesn't drink. It's Leroy Butler. Take it away. So you know how we do over Friday. We like to bring you a celebrity guest, but it does not get bigger than this our guest on the podcast today is a super bowl champ an all-round defensive legend four-time pro bowler four-time all pro he was the first player in his position to reach the 20 sacks 20 interception club on the line of leroy butler leroy how are you what's going on this is very exciting to be on with you guys i just hope you can understand me leroy throughout this podcast <laughs> it's okay for you to say sorry little irishman could you please repeat that you know what? I'd trade two Super Bowls for that accent. <laughs> I'd have so many girlfriends right now with that accent. Trust me. Here, I'll tell you what. Can we do that? Can we swap? Can we make that swap? Because that's fine with me. I'll be your voice coach. You just post the rings over, Leroy. Is that okay? Hey, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, Leroy, a bit of a light, a bit of a fun interview for a Friday over here for all your adoring fans. Now, look, when I told people that we we're going to have Leroy Butler on the podcast... They lost their mind. They went crazy. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to sort of, you know, get a feeling for who you are, Leroy, how you came up, you know, your kind of upbringing and stuff. Yeah. And then hit the, of course, your Super Bowl champ. I want to hear all about it. But uh, now, again, first thing we have to get off the bat. Is your name pronounced Leroy or Leroy? How did mama name you? It's, it's good. I'm good with either. It's no big deal. My friends in Florida call me Leroy. My friends in Wisconsin call me Leroy. So it's no big deal. Yeah, right. Sure. I'll tell you what. Your friends in Europe here will call you Leroy as well. That's how we say it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. Right, Leroy. So, I mean, you know, what I find incredible about your career, and I am a bit starstruck now talking to a legend, but let me take you back a little bit. I mean, is your story from your your childhood not the most unlikely sports story ever written? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for the most part, um, I think when I, I do a lot of speaking engagements at a lot of schools and I talk to a lot of kids and when I tell them my, the way I grew up, I mean, they can't believe it because they think a lot of athletes were maybe born with, you know, with uh, normal, you know, normal background with two parents, nice house, white picket fence. But for me, you know, my mom was single parent. You know, my dad got divorced at I was four years old. Yeah. I learned that I had club feet, so I had to wear these braces on my legs, sort of like Forrest Gump. Yeah. And at times, sometimes I had to sit in a wheelchair and. You know, kids picked on me my whole career. It seemed like, you know, growing up and I was in special education for, it seemed like my whole school, you know, life. So I had it hard, but for the most point, Stephen, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And I used to watch football all the time. And I used to watch it. And I said, man, I really want to be a part of that. But, you know, my mom, you know, she could have said, you know, statistically African-American in the project, yeah. you're not going to play pro football. Do something else. But that's not what she told me. She told me I can do whatever I want to do. I just need to be a leader. 
not a follower, and don't be a statistics by getting in trouble like some of the other kids in the neighborhood. And I always believed that. Leroy, was that hard to do in your neighborhood? I mean, because the neighborhood that you grew up in was like a minefield on top of sort of the issues that you said, you know, with the club feed stuff. But I mean, it was a bad neighborhood, right? It was terrible. It really was. I mean, I remember for 38 straight days at one time we averaged one homicide. Yeah. I just remember it, it was just crimes, drugs. You know, it was just one of these places the way a lot of people wasn't going to make it out. And my mom, who's my role model, she just kept us focused, you know, focused on not being a statistic like some of these other kids, not hurting people, and just growing up being a leader. But if you're going to follow somebody, choose the right person to follow. And I followed her. I mean, she had three jobs at one point. She used to catch the bus and get up four or five in the morning, fix us breakfast and leave and stuff like that. So, you know, I just kept my blinders on, just like the horses on the races. I never watched another horse. I watched <laughs> the finish line. And that was to play pro football to get my mom out of the projects. Yeah, because, I mean, Leroy, what made you pick football in the first place? Because you were an absolutely gifted athlete. I mean, you were a track star, football star, baseball. You dabbled in baseball. Why football? You know, that's a good question because football, to me, I love teamwork. I love the fact that a guy has to rely upon me to win a game. I just love that. I, and football is the, the quintessential team sport. You need all 11 guys to think one particular goal, and that's winning a Super Bowl. And I just, I'm fascinated by that. And I love the talk, I love the network, and, and I love to motivate players, and I just love that. And once I just saw that on television, like one guy, he gets in front of 10 guys, he kind of tell them something, and they go do what he says, and they're all synchronized. I just love that. Yeah, and I mean, Speaking of looking at television, so you, so you would have been watching the pro game on telly, and Leroy, yes. the Packers were not good watching back then. <laughs> you know, here's some breaking news. I grew up the biggest Cowboy fan <laughs> in the entire land. And I don't think a lot of Packer fans know that, but I, I was the biggest. Oh, I used to watch Roger Staubach like he was God. Yeah. I just loved it. And I just... You know, and, and my favorite team in college growing up was Florida State, the yeah. Florida State Seminoles. So those two teams were winning a lot. So I thought football was easy. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But, you know, I had to learn the hard way. But those are my teams growing up. So, I mean, looking at your, you know, every kid looks at TV and looks at all the offensive stars. Nowadays, people are looking up to Aaron Rodgers and you know, Jordy Nelson. Yep. I mean, what made you switch to the opposite side of the ball? You know, because you, you kind of, like you excelled in your career to be a legend, but I mean, so many people put in a hard shift on defense, but never get the recognition. You're right about that. You know, man, you're very astute because everybody wants to be a quarterback growing up in Little League. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody wants to be a running back. Everybody wants to score a touchdown. To me, the real men defend guys from getting in okay defense win championships case in point look at denver last year yeah so their defense won the super bowl and i think if you go back to my super bowl super bowl 31 we had the number one defense but we also had the number one offense and had the number one special teams but i, I just wanted i wanted to defend i thought that can separate me from a lot of people growing up, if I just go out and say, listen, I want to play anywhere on the defense. I'll play offense, yeah. but I love the defense, and I just kind of excelled at it. 
Yeah, and I mean, look, you you got you you made your your dreams. You know, you got into the pro game, but Florida is so much very different than Green Bay. When it happened at the time, <laughs> did you go to Green Bay and go, "What is this"? <laughs> when I got the phone call from Lee Rimmel, uh, God bless him, he passed on. Yeah, he was telling me all about Wisconsin and all this stuff, and I said, "Wait, wait, wait, wait a minute, where's Green Bay?" <laughs> Because I had heard they play sometime in Milwaukee. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they're a little confused. That's why they're not winning games. They don't know where they're home. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of laughed at it. They said, well, no, you'll be fine. You know, the weather has to be, you know, it gets a little chilly. They used the word chilly. They didn't say cold. <laughs> it gets a little chilly, but you'll be fine. And, boy, I told my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Say so we're going to Green Bay to just select him in the second round. I remember her having a fit. She was screaming, <laughs> Oh my goodness, Green Bay, we're gonna die. It's so cold <laughs> up there. <laughs> I said, No, it'll be fine. It gotta be eighty, ninety degrees. I've never been there. But we got a real culture shock, but that's the reason why I stayed to one team. I love the fans. And you said that your girlfriend at the time, and she was scared she was going to die. You said girlfriend at the time, did she, did she die? I mean, is she up there buried in the snow in Green Bay? No, trust me, she loved it. She liked the fact that it was cheaper to live in Wisconsin than it was in Florida. So a lot of the nice clothes that she was getting that I was buying, by the way, <laughs> she was just fine. Leroy, was it a shock at first? I mean, were you disappointed to be drafted by Green Bay, in all honesty, because, you know, they were so poor. Like, Green Bay were poor. Now, we loved them to death, but they were a very poor team from the 60s yeah. all the way up. Even your first two years there can't have been easy. You know, the, the thing about it, having a childhood dream of playing professional football and where I came from. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to go to the Dallas Cowboys, but it didn't matter. I was so excited. I mean, you don't understand. I, I went through a bunch of up and downs through my years. I was just so fortunate. The phone rang. And then it, it, then it hits you where you're going to live yeah. in Green Bay. Because I didn't know where to get soul food. Cause I, <laughs> I didn't know where to get a haircut. Yeah. I didn't know any of this kind of stuff. So, But I learned fast because, you know, the Green Bay fans, man, they're fantastic. They kind of help you out. I mean, they even let us ride their bikes down to practice so we don't walk. We can save our energy. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's an unbelievable community, which is why, you know, we're such a, a big fan group over here because we find that if an American, for instance, has interest in soccer, so they support, you know, one of the teams over here in the UK, they're kind of sure. laughed at. But once we support NFL and the Green Bay Packers, we find that, the you know, the people in Wisconsin... You know, we went over there uh, last year for our first game, you know, and we're going to do an annual road trip um, every year to go over. Definitely catch one game. Some people are catching two, but there's no laughing. There's no scoffing at you. And they invited us in with open arms like we were family. Yeah, when I heard you guys, uh, Nathan, one of my assistants told me you guys came to a game, I was floored. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. I mean, because the reach of the Packers is worldwide, but... You know, when I, I was excited to talk to you guys from the UK, I mean, I didn't know the the level of Packer fans around the world was to that level. So when when you contacted me on Twitter, I said, oh, no doubt, I want to do that. That's, 
I mean, that's fantastic. You can get a chance to talk to as many fans as possible. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you've got a massive cult following. It's not even a cult following. You've got a massive following over here. Everyone, the buzz was going through UK Packers HQ like crazy when we said we're going to speak to you because, I mean, you've seen some absolutely legendary times. You know, you've seen the resurgence of the Packers from the abyss of the 1960s through the 80s. I mean, if I can take you back then, uh, Leroy, 1992, Mike Holmgren comes to town. I mean, after two bad years, did you feel the mood change in Packers camp when he arrived or was he sort of an unknown entity at that time? Well, you know, he had, he, at the time, he was never a head coach before, so we really didn't know how to take him. Yeah. But one thing we did know, he came from a great organization, San Francisco, and they had won a couple Super Bowls, I think. So when you come to Green Bay, as you indicated, it was a losing culture. Yeah. And people there didn't know what to expect. You win the first two Super Bowls, then there's a drought. So he came in and he pretty much gutted the whole team out. I remember Ron Wolf walking in. We had just beaten Minnesota. And he said, a lot of you guys may not be here next year. This is 1991. Yeah. He says, listen, I'm going to win a championship. A lot of you guys are not going to be here. So, you know, nice to meet you guys. And he just left. Yeah. And at that point, things started to change. We traded for Brett Favre. We went and got the top free agent in all of the NFL, Reggie White, yeah, few other pieces, and we were on our way. I mean, like, how did that feel as a locker room to have someone come in and say, "Listen, your job's on the line." Did that act I as know. a motivator, or did that did that destroy some of the morale as well? I was glad to hear it, yeah, because I think we were expecting to play some of these other teams, and we were expecting to lose. I liked it, the arrogance that we're going to change this around, and we're going to win. These guys have a formula to win. And we're all on the job training. It was his first time being a head coach, and he brought in a great staff. And he was right. A lot of those guys, over 90% of those guys, they they were not on the team when we started to win, like 95 on, all new guys. And Ron Wolf, he had did it before, you know, with the Raiders and all these other teams and Tampa Bay. He knew what he wanted. And the next thing you know, he was looking at this quarterback saying, you know what? I need a quarterback. And he's down in Atlanta, and I'm going to get him. I need to start with a quarterback. And it was unbelievable. But, I mean, we look at the sort of, you know, you, all you have to do is YouTube Brett Favre, and you can go on and see the documentary. That boy was rough around the edges when he started off. <laughs> I mean, how anybody could see the potential in a guy who, he never made the Atlanta picture because he was hung over. And, you know, he was a guy who was sort of, for a, you know, we find that most Packer players, we call them Packer people because all you guys are, you know, the, the almost of integrity. You, you give 100% on the field. You're into your charitable causes off it. It's like he's never got a day off. But, like, did you did you see the potential in Brett Favre? Because at that stage, you would have only been a backup to, to Don, right? You just wouldn't have sort of seen him as the starter, would you? I played against him, Stephen, in college. Yeah. And here's how his career was. Big time Florida State. And we're playing. He's at Southern Mississippi, and they beat us. And they had Brett up for the Heisman. I said, man, that kid got a strong arm. And he just, he makes the throw the other quarterbacks are scared to make. Yeah. So when he got to Green Bay, I was telling guys, I said, man, this guy can really throw the ball hard. But he has touch. And he had leadership qualities. So when Don Mikowski gets hurt against Cincinnati, I mean, he came in right away and he made some of the best throws I've ever seen. Yeah. 
I mean, it was just unbelievable. Was it frustrating at times, though, Leroy, from a defensive standpoint when, like, Brett Favre, I mean, we all know he's a man legend and all the stuff that's happening, especially this year, you know, uh, with the whole, his number going up onto the stadium. But was it frustrating sometimes from a defensive standpoint with the interceptions that he used to throw, especially earlier in his career, you know, when he wasn't as established as being the gunslinger? You know, that's another good question because I think for the most part, people see that he leads, you know, everybody in touchdowns and interceptions. I remember him in practice throwing the interception. I remember how he felt down. He was kicking the grass. I said, listen, we want you to play the way you can play. Yeah. Don't be scared. If you want to make it over the linebacker, inside the safety and between two cornerbacks, you do it. It's our job to go and get the ball back. Yeah. Don't you just do your thing and don't worry about it. Once he heard that, all he could do now is just relax and play. And that's all we wanted. Just go out and play. We'll take care of any offense to feel like if you throw an interception, we'll go back there and get it back. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And from a locker room perspective then, Leroy, I mean, is it sort of split down the middle that defensive guys hang with defensive guys, offensive guys hang with offensive guys, and the only time you mix is during practice when you're kind of playing against each other? Or does everybody mill around and it's, a, it's more of a team spirit in there? You know, for that particular team, for Super Bowl 31, it was a big mixture because one of my favorite friends was Edgar Bennett. We played Little League sports. You know, we played junior high sports. We played college together and the pros. So we had a big team concept. You know, that's the good thing about it. You know, no, it was no selfish players. You know, even when we brought Andre Risen over for that particular year, you know, everybody got in where they fit in. But when you swipe your, your key card to come in the building, it was one goal to win a, a Super Bowl. And that's the only way you can win you playing in sports like that. And I tell all the kids when I talk to them, if you don't trust the guy next to you, you will not win. And, I mean, was the biggest statement of that sort of, you know, will to win 1993, Reggie White comes into the locker room. I mean, was that the single biggest thing that Wolf and Holmgren could have done to say, we mean business? No question about it, because remember, no African-Americans at the time wanted to come to Green Bay. That was just allegedly what people were putting out there. Yeah. And at the time, there was no free agency. We had this thing called Plan B, where you could protect so many players. Reggie sued the NFL to be a free agent. So he was the top free agent. So to get him, I asked Ron Whoopo, what did you do? What did you say? He said, you can go anywhere and be a great player. If you come to Green Bay, you'll be a legend. Yeah. And that was true. And when Reggie heard that, I think that was, that was the key and we were on our way. And that's exactly what happened. He became a legend. Like, I mean, at that level, and like, again, your career just went up and up and up and up. But with players like that, when they come into the locker room, is are some players looking at players like him and be, becoming starstruck by that and thinking, I can't believe I'm oh, playing with him? Yes. Oh, yeah? Yes. When I first saw, you can hear it in my voice. When I first <laughs> saw Reggie, I thought it was a, like, wait a minute. You know, you see somebody, but you don't. Yeah. And I, I said, that's Reggie White. <laughs> Reggie White's in Green Bay. He must be lost. And I had to go talk to him. I said, man, that's Reggie White. I said, man, Reggie White's in here, guy. They said, I know. He's in there taking a physical. Whoa. Immediately, I felt I got to change my game. Yeah. I got I to gotta step my game up. If Reggie White's coming here, I got to play better. 
I got to be just like Reggie. I got to step my game up. And I and tell you what, it turned my life around. Playing with guys like that, I felt great. It's, I mean, it's amazing to, to see that because, I mean, when you look at the stats alone, when Reggie White joined in 1993, the defense went from 23rd to 2nd in the league. So <laughs> it, it's, it's incredible. But it just, you know what? It's Behind the stats is just exactly what you're after saying. That influence wasn't Reggie White. He couldn't have done it on his own. Everybody stepped their game up when he walked into the building. Yes. And that's the thing. We, we had a guy named Keith McKenzie. All this guy does is go after the quarterback. We had Sean Jones, and all he wants to do is get after the quarterback. Yeah. Gilbert Brown, Santana Dotson, everybody played their role, and everybody never wanted to let your your fellow man down. You know, and that and that was just so awesome. It really was. And Reggie was a big key to that. You just never wanted to let your friends down. But I mean, Leroy, how poetic is it that that's the very man that set up something another key to why you're such a legend in pack nation the lambo leap he was the he was the guy who handed you the ball and you ran it down i mean please i mean talk to me about that did you think at the back of your head did you have that in the back of your head for years like you know what the next time i run in for a touchdown i'm gonna dive up into those stands or was it just completely spontaneous it was all spontaneous i wish it was a cool story behind it <laughs> I, I just remember reggie when he played in philadelphia he was, they used to pitch the ball back to each other when they would get a, a fumble or interception. Yeah. And Eric Allen, who one of my best friends, they pitch it to him or somebody else and they would run it. So for some reason, when I called the fumble, Reggie picked the fumble up, some guy was grabbing him and we caught eye contact and he laddered it to me and I just took off and started running. Yeah. I just remember not knowing if it was legal or not. I just jumped <laughs> up there and, and some guy wasted a beer all on me and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just great. Well, I went back. If you YouTube it, you'll see Brett Favre coming out there with this cape on like Superman. <laughs> and it's just so funny. It was like, oh, my God, dude, you stink. You smell like beer. <laughs> I said, yeah, some guy threw his beer right at me when I caught, when he called me. And, and they said it was a touchdown. And I didn't get fined the following week. So I said, well, I guess we can do it. And what carried it on? I mean, was it a discussion in the in the locker room after? Because, I mean, Robert Brooks famously, you know, carried it on and used to jump up into the stands. Did you ever have a conversation with him and say, oh, you should do it? Or did Brooks ever come to you and say, like the celebration, I'm having it? I think for the most part, if you're an offensive guy, you're going to do more Lambo leaps. Yeah. But the, the thing what Robert did was he made a song about it and made it famous. Yeah. And if you didn't do a Lambo leap... You would get booed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, because every time he scored, he did it. Yeah. And, and people were like, if you scored and didn't do a Lambo leap, I mean, it was just like, wait a minute now. You got to do the Lambo leap. And Robert, you know, he even trademarked the word Lambo leap. Yeah. And he just made it so famous after that. You know, it was just great. His song even starts out the way he got the idea from me. And he just took it to another level. And it was it just it's just a fun thing because the Green Bay Packers are doing the Lambo leap at home, they're winning games. Yeah, and I mean look, it goes to show how popular and how loved the Lambo Leap is because if a Wisconsinite is willing to waste his beer for something right. and it's a Lambo Leap, you know they're loving it. <laughs> You're right, because beer is very important in Wisconsin. <laughs> Not just cheese. 
it's beer as well oh yeah and you look as an irishman i completely understand i get what they mean <laughs> not, not one to reinforce stereotypes but you know what i mean right absolutely but uh so i mean all of that aside the the team is slowly gearing up for that inevitable super bowl birth and he's got there in super bowl 30 Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like the start of your career, where it might have seemed unlikely. I mean, when you were picking up momentum, did the Super Bowl seem unlikely as well? Because Brett Favre came out that May, right, and said that he was addicted to painkillers. Was that a shock yeah. to the whole organization? You know, to be honest with you, Stephen, a lot of the players didn't even know. Really, yeah? We didn't even, we had no idea. I didn't even see the press conference. Yeah. I, I was like, I love the guy. Who cares? Yeah. That's that's my boy. That's my bro. Who cares? I said, long, I said, is anything wrong with his arm? They go, no. I said, well, he's good, and we start laughing because <laughs> we support we support you when you up and when you down. Yeah. We don't abandon anybody. We didn't even care, but we felt bad for him for the most part because it takes a real man to do that. Yeah, and we love that. You don't even understand the unconditional love we have for him. And for him to do that, I think for a split second, he thought he was alone. I said, dude, you're not alone. Yeah. We never even talked about it. I just need you to keep throwing passes. Yeah. And I think that was refreshing to hear, you know, because sometimes you go to these locker rooms, it's a lot of guys whispering and saying stuff behind your back. We didn't have that. Yeah. We had unconditional love because we know if we loved one another, we were going to win. And we just, we were behind them all the way. And I mean, the Super Bowl then itself, the pressure then, uh, you know, because Brett Favre then, I mean, he, he got clean, came out, said, you know, we're going the whole way, which again would have put pressure on you. But even for going into the Super Bowl itself, the Packers were favorites. Did that weigh on you as a player or is that all just some media hype that, you know, journalists like to look and go, oh, the pressure's on you? Or do you not even think about that type of stuff when you're a player? You just focus I on abs- your job. I absolutely love the pressure. Oh, yeah? Loved it. Loved it. When I thought... It was a 14-point favorite. I said, that's about right. <laughs> we were, hey, we were so arrogant that year. I mean, really, because I remember Bob McGinn from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel asking me, can you guys go 19-0? I said, hell yeah. <laughs> I said, Cause we, got, we, we had everything we needed. Desmond Howard, Super Bowl MVP, by the way. Yeah. He was the best at what he did, returning kicks. Our defense was the best, and our offense was the best. We had the best quarterback. We had the best two-tandem running back. We had a makeshift offensive line, but they were the best. And we had the best coaching staff. We were so arrogant. So the pressure, we wanted it. We thrived on it. And if we picked up the paper and it didn't say that we were going to win, we were upset. <laughs> so we saw the 14-point spread. Oh, that's about right. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And yeah. so did that carry into the actual game itself? Did you have time to enjoy the game? And do you remember much about playing the actual Super Bowl game itself? Or is it all just a blur of focus? Absolutely. I remember every single play. I remember um, New England, one of my best friends, Drew Brett, so one of the nicest, best guys to ever play quarterback in the National Football League. I just love the guy. Him and Curtis Martin. Yeah. And, you know, Keith Byers. All these guys are great guys. And Bill Belichick. And, and, and uh, you go back and look at Bill Parcells and all that group. Yeah. They came out fast on us. Yeah. Okay. 
they came out fast, and at one time they were pushing us around. And then if you look at the video, I called everybody up on the sideline. Yeah. I say, eventually, just keep doing what you're doing. Eventually, it'll turn around because we're the better team. And boy, did it ever. Reggie White <laughs> took over, and I had one of the best sacks of my career yeah. going around and through Dave Meckett and sacking Bledsoe. And the defense got fired up. And then after that, we hit Antonio Freeman for an 86-yard bomb. Yeah. And the next thing you know, Brett did a bootleg and scored on a quarterback keep. And next thing you know, we were holding that trophy up. And how do you celebrate that, Leroy? Like, you know, does it, does it sink in on the day that you're after becoming world champions? And what did you do after? It's very emotional. Yeah. It's very emotional once you see Lombardi's name on the trophy. It's, it, it, you know, just like Mike Holmgren said, everybody's trying to get it, but if, it's different because our name is on the trophy, yeah. Lombardi trophy. And then all of a sudden it hit me emotionally what I had to go through as a kid. And I told my mom I wanted to play professional football to do that and get to the pinnacle of my life to win a Super Bowl. Everybody got emotional. Yeah. Because remember, in football, we don't do the champagne like baseball and basketball. We don't do that. So you you have a chance to kind of gather yourself. And I don't drink and I don't smoke. So I celebrated by thinking back what I had to endure as a kid. And that was my celebration. I had completed the goal that I wanted to as a kid, going through special education, going through bullying, going through being in a wheelchair, going through being poverty-stricken and all that, it was not luck. I just believe what my grandmother told me, that God gave everybody this special power and you have the ability to focus on it and you'll be just fine. Yeah, because, I mean, you were a dominant team for what seemed like an age now. And the following year, how close did you come to repeating? I mean, what, what was that feeling like? Because to talk about going from highs to lows. Yeah, that was a lot of mixed emotion. The same arrogance was there because we had pretty much the same team. But we had everything. But it was a few distractions. One of the distractions was, you know, Coach Hongram, it was all in the paper that he may leave, you know, because yeah. he wants to be GM. And, and you know, we just, for some reason, you know, we just wasn't focused in that particular game. Because, again, we was a 14-point favorite. And again, we looked and said, that's about right. <laughs> and we thought we should beat them. Yeah. We really did. But we didn't make a lot of adjustments. And, you know, Elway played pretty good. And Terrell Davis, who had some problems, had with migraines or something in that game. Yeah. But I have to give them credit, man. They played a great game, pretty much a flawless game. Because any mistakes, we would have took advantage of it and yeah. we would have beat Yeah. And, I mean, at that stage then, I mean, you were a Packer for, for a good while now. I mean, did you see your career slowly starting to come to an end? Did you see an end in the horizon, or did you think that you could play on for what seemed like forever? I really felt like I could play forever. I, when I made it to 10 years, yeah. I said, man, I beat the odds. <laughs> so I'm just going to enjoy my career, and hopefully I can win another Super Bowl. As long as I saw number four getting dressed, I yeah. said, well, I got a chance. Okay. That was it. 
and that that's the players on your team but as you said you know with Mike Holmgren becoming sort of restless he did leave and then you had Ray Rhodes there what went wrong under Ray Rhodes did the players just not buy into his philosophy or what was going on in the background there because it's very rare that a head coach especially after signing a four-year contract only lasts one year yeah that was amazing because if you look at that roster they gave Ray Rhodes a gun but he had no bullets yeah and he just didn't have the player to do it. I mean, obviously, you got Brett, you had myself, and a few other guys. But the pieces that we had when we were making a Super Bowl run, they weren't there. Yeah. I mean, it was a new guy every week, it seemed like, on the team. And, and that new guy would come in and play a prominent role. And they just they just bailed because they thought it was going to go back to the 70s. Yeah. They feel like they had to make some adjustments. But had they stuck with it, I think you would have saw it turn around because we had some talent on the team, but you can't get stuff. You can't rebuild in one year. It's going to take time. And they didn't, And at the time, we were spoiled Yeah. because we had worked this thing all the way back up. Matter of fact, when we won the Super Bowl, I saw a sign said 30 years of misery has ended <laughs> with going to the Super Bowl. Yeah. So at that point, that was one of the low lifes. I mean, the low points of my life at that time because I really wanted to see Ray Rose succeed and he did not get a chance to do that. Yeah, because, I mean, your career was so successful. Super Bowl champion, four-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro. You're in the NFL 1990s All-Decades team and you're in the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. But in 2001, your career ended. Do you remember the tackle? And do you remember, did it, did it occur to you at the time that, you know, this could be it? You know what, the thing about it, I've made that tackle thousands of times from high school all the way through uh, college and pros. Yeah. But it was just the way that I tackled the guy. His helmet hit my shoulder, and my shoulder just exploded. And once I saw it on x-ray, I said, well, this may be a chance that I could never play again. And we went through a year of trying to let it heal, but it just was was not healing the way I could hit somebody. And again, remember I told you, after 10 years, I said, hey, I'm ahead of the curve. So if I can get out now, I have a great life. And it worked out great for me because I was able to do play my last game in Lambeau Field for one team. And uh, were you ready for life after football? I mean, were you well geared up for it or did it take you a bit of time to adjust? No, I was ready for it after my, like, my 10th year yeah you know i said this is what i want to do i wanted i really wanted to go into coaching so bad i really did and and mike sherman who i think that respected my career more than any coach i've ever had he gave me an opportunity to do that because he was gm and coach at the time but when he got fired that ted thompson came in and i never had an opportunity again to be in a coach's room yeah so after that, I said, I can get into the media because that's the next best way I can stay close to the game. And I did. I worked for ESPN for a couple of years. I worked for a couple other media outlets. Now I'm in Milwaukee working for Intercom, 1057 yeah. The Fan, and I do some stuff for uh, Time Warner Cable on television. Yeah. And now and I do a lot of speaking engagements and stuff like that. But hopefully one day I'll get a chance to be a coach. Yeah, so you're still harboring those hopes and you still want to get back yeah, into the game hands-on, yeah? It's two things I asked God for when I retired. I asked God for an opportunity to have a son 
because yeah. I have four daughters. <laughs> so I, I now have a son. He's five years old. Yeah. I named him Leroy Butler the fourth, and the reason why I named him Leroy Butler the fourth so he can get a job. He'll be able to get married, married, and he'll be able to get Packer tickets. <laughs> so that's why I named, <laughs> I named him after me. But now my other thing was I wanted is to have an opportunity to be a coach. So I have my son. I'm just waiting for that other dream to come true. Well, I just had a son. He's only three months, but I'm thinking about changing his name to Leroy Butler the fifth, if that's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I, that's fine with me. <laughs> so, I mean, Leroy, I mean, you know, you're, you were a player in the game and now you've become a media sort of mogul. You know, you're an expert in the game. How do you think the game has changed now? Do you think it's a different beast than the way that you played it with, like, look at the amount of money, the contracts? Like you talk about the team spirit in the Packer locker room. Everyone was there for each other. But nowadays, to me anyway, it seems like players are just out to get the money. They're more about themselves, all their own media engagements. Is it a completely different animal now? Yes, with social media. Social media has changed it a lot. Two things that changed. We didn't have social media when I played. Yeah. Because now guys are their own individual. They release information all the time. And not only that, we did not have uh, the concussion protocol when I played. Now, once these guys get uh, concussion, they have to sit out and go through all these tests. And not only that, now they have these—they have a guaranteed contract. If you look at what Andrew Luck got, he got, you know, seventy million dollars guaranteed. Yeah. And then, and somebody said, no, it wasn't seventy; it was eighty-seven million. And they said, really? Was it eighty? I mean, we were confused. <laughs> Once you get over, because I thought Sam Bradford, when he got $50 million guaranteed, I thought that would be the highest ever. And I really believe Aaron Rodgers is going to sign an extension that's going to give him close to $100 million guaranteed. Yeah. So those kind of things, you know, it's all relative, because I remember the guys that played in the 60s used to look at my contract and was like, whoa. <laughs> you know? So it's it's all relative, and I understand it. But at the same time, you know, players are now, especially fantasy football, is huge now. Yeah. So guys now are a little bit selfish, but for the most part, you can tell the team who play together; those are the team that normally win. And I mean, Leroy, you were you played smash mouth football. I mean, you played hard. Would you like to play in the NFL nowadays if you were coming into the game? Because it's a very pass-intensive league. I mean, is this a league that Leroy Butler would like to get into and do it all over again? Absolutely. I'd get 10 interceptions every year. <laughs> because it's all about the quarterback. Most of these guys, I think 10 or 12 guys every year will get 4,000 yards and maybe 25 to 30 touchdowns. They get a lot of interceptions, though. Yeah. They throw the ball a lot now. It's all about the quarterback. So, yeah, but when I played, everybody wanted to be balanced. You know, you you would throw for 3,500, but you had a running back that would get you, you know, 1,400 yards. Now the, the, the running back is obsolete. Yeah. It's about receivers, offensive line, and your quarterback. Two quarterbacks winning the draft, one and two. Yeah. So you got to have a great quarterback to win in this league. And the Packers this season, Leroy, I mean, what are your predictions? Do you think, you know, it's Super Bowl is definitely on the cards that we can, we can you know, do the stretch? Or do you think there's those other factors behind all of this that the Packers really need to get together? Every time you win a Super Bowl, you get a five-year window. They won it, so they won it in 2010, Super Bowl 45. So the five-year window is this year, okay? So this should be the year that they go to the Super Bowl if they stay healthy. Without Jordy Nelson last year, it was going to be tough. If they can stay healthy, this is the year they'll go to the Super Bowl. Now, 
So I'm predicting them to be 11-5 and five and go to the Super Bowl and win it. If they don't, that's when people start to get a little restless because it'll be over six and a half years since you've won one. And if you look at the last eight to ten years, it's two or three teams or maybe even three or four teams who've repeated going to two Super Bowls. Yeah. You know, they won one, but they went to two of them. You know, if you look at Denver, if you look at uh, Seattle yeah. and New England, these teams, all they think about is going to the Super Bowl. So you got to be that team to stay relevant and get to the Super Bowl. When you got 13 championships total, yeah. all you talk about is the Super Bowl. So that's what Green Bay Packers, that's what our fans expect, and that's what the players expect. And would you subscribe to the opinion that, you know, the window is closing for Aaron Rodgers as he gets older? Again, he's still the best quarterback in the NFL, but the Packers do have that tight window and they need to make it happen when he's in his prime. Absolutely. But if you look at Aaron Rodgers, 32 years old, to me, he's really 29. The first three years of his career, he didn't play. He was learning behind Brett Favre. So he was just really just being on the JV team until he got to the varsity. Yeah. So with that being said, I am just thrilled to death that he can play another seven or eight years. Yeah. And I mean, let's go from one great man to the next. Uh, Leroy, you do an awful lot off the field, don't you, for charitable causes and trying to give back to the community. Can you give us kind of a flavor of what your day is filled with now outside your media? Yeah, quite a bit in the summer. I do a lot of speaking engagement, a lot of golf tournaments for for a lot of charitable causes. Matter of fact, tomorrow we're doing a Relay for Life event. And then we're doing another event August the 2nd for another charity called Give Kids the World. You know, I've done something for uh, Habitat for Humanity, another golf tournament. We're doing one for MSOE, another golf tournament. So, you know, as players, we try to make ourselves available so the fans can see us in the community and at the same time be available to continue the Green Bay Packer brand. We also came off a, uh, we had went on a Packer tour about about three weeks ago. Yeah. You know, you get six Packers, we go all around the state and the Packer fan tour, it was exceptional. We had so much fun. That's excellent. And you know what? We're bringing our own Packers tour and we're going over to see the Cowboys game you wouldn't, by any chance, be around loitering around Lambeau Field, would you, when we go I over will. that time? I will. I definitely will be there. Well, can we buy yes. a pint? Well, I'll tell you what we can definitely do. I, remember, I, I don't drink, but y'all can definitely buy me a Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a deal. It's an absolute deal. Yep. I look forward to seeing you when you guys get here. This really made my day. And I really appreciate you guys over there in the UK. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Well, there it is, uh, Leroy Butler. Let's just hope his Hall of Fame induction, you know, stacked up somewhat to the joy and the, the, his day being made by being on the UK Packers podcast. So look, lads, ladies, lads, keep your talks on, lads. Uh, that's it for the podcast. Uh, myself, Daryl, and hopefully Pete will be back now with the draft coverage as well. Uh, that's going to kick in soon. So that's uh, really exciting stuff. So we'll be back next week. And until then, go Pack Go. And talk to you then.